Hello and welcome back to A Truth Universally Acknowledged with me, Harriet Minter. This is the final episode of this season, but don't worry, there will be more. I'm just taking a little break for Christmas and my birthday, but it'll be back again in January. Because it's the final episode of the season, I thought we should end kind of back at the question that really started it all, which is this. What does it mean to write women's commercial fiction and why are we so drawn to it? To help me answer that, this week I'm joined by the lovely Emma Hughes, author of the joyful and very relatable No Such Thing as Perfect. Emma also wrote an article for The Guardian about why it is that women's commercial fiction is so overlooked by those serious book reviewers. We have a good old rant about why people are so dismissive of women writers. I admit that a lot of my thinking about fiction is still heavily influenced by men. And we look at how the tropes of women's writing are changing. No more falling in love with Mr. Tall, Dark and Handsome. Now it's all about falling in love with yourself. Also today, I talk book progress and what I want to achieve in the new year. And we have a little creative booster to start 2022 with. So first up, where am I with the book? Well, you're right, remember that a few weeks ago I made a promise that this month I would map out the plot and focus on making sure that was watertight so at least I knew where I was going with it. If you haven't listened to the episode with Adele Parks, then go back and do because you'll know that she has a brilliant plan for exactly how to do this. Essentially, you map out their characters and their interactions, then you put these into a chapter-by-chapter plan and then you do a deep dive on your characters where you really interrogate them. Well, I'm at the chapter by chapter bit and slowly getting there, which is actually more fun than I thought it would be. I am not a natural planner, but I've taken the advice of Nikki May um, when she says that she sees how much she can torture her characters. So each chapter, I'm torturing them a little bit more. My poor old heroine is having a horrible time, but at least now there is lots of plot. My goal is that over the quieter Twixmas period, when, let's face it, we're probably all going to be in lockdown anyway, I'll get those character arcs developed and then I can actually start writing to the plot rather than just writing and hoping some plot will follow later, which is what I've done for about 15,000 words so far. If you're thinking that 2022 might be the year when you start writing that book, then there is lots of great advice in all of these podcasts. So I urge you, go back, have a listen, get a plot written down first. Do as I say, not as I do. Now, I met the lovely Emma Hughes on Twitter when her article for The Guardian started being retweeted by all my favourite authors. I picked up her book, No Such Thing as Perfect, and fell in love with the main character, so I knew we'd get on. I hope you enjoy this chat about why we love the books we love, what it means to write for women, and a little bit about why Strictly Come Dancing is so joyful. So I'm very lucky to be joined this week by the author of No Such Thing as Perfect, which... I love because it combines lots of my favourite things, including the horrors of internet dating and dogs. The fabulous Emma Hughes. Hello, Emma. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to preface this podcast by saying that I am here with my dog who is snoring very loudly in the background. And you are there with Wi-Fi that is, I quote, being interfered with by rodents. Is that what's going on? Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, apparently, um, apparently there are rats that chew the cables, which I mean, I just I'm just not sure how plausible that is. But that's what BT is saying. So um, I've literally got a text message (laughs) talking about the rodent interference on my road. So it's been a long two years. (laughs) It's going on for two years. Like terrorist rodents. Oh, my God. 
we've probably given somebody a really great add-on to the general conspiracy theory at the moment like not only is covid like a world domination plot but also there are kind of supersized rodents chewing through wi-fi to keep us even more isolated bionic internet rats yeah. <laughs> when i move into science fiction that's uh, that's going to be my starting point thank you bt openreach amazing well thank you for persevering and joining me anyway it's so lovely to have you i loved there's no such thing as perfect it was proper kind of curl up on a wintry day enjoyable i'm going to talk about all the things i loved about it in a minute but actually, the reason that I kind of reached out to you and said, will you come on the podcast and talk to me is because you wrote a brilliant article for The Guardian about women's commercial fiction and the publishing industry in general. Tell us a little bit about the article and why you came to write it. So as you as you will probably know, um, December is traditionally uh, it's roundup season in publishing and uh, yeah it's the time of year when newspapers magazines websites they you know they all put together these lists of the books that they think have kind of defined the year and I, I yeah I do just want to kind of preface this by saying that there are loads of um you know there are loads of magazines websites whose editors really really care about women's commercial fiction and they really champion it and um so it's not across the board but I would say that kind of what you might call kind of broadsheet media it does tend to get overlooked there and I think uh, what kind of what kind of catalyzed that for me this year was a Times and Sunday Times list of it said it was the best books in every every genre mm. um, and and I mean there were, there were lots of genres but there was nothing that you would call romantic comedy romance um women's commercial fiction and and you know even within the the just kind of novels bracket there was there was absolutely nothing and I just thought this is ridiculous um you know because it's such a it, it is an enormous uh chunk of of the publishing industry <laughs> I mean, it is absolutely ridiculous because and what you said really brilliantly in your piece that I just was like yes cheering for was um you know it's like not only is it an enormous chunk of the publishing industry it's, it's kind of the backbone of the publishing industry it's actually yeah. the bit that drives the money. It's the bit that drives the sales. It's the bit that allows other stuff that perhaps doesn't bring in as much money to be published and be created. And also it's the bit that provides millions of people around the world with lots of enjoyment, pleasure, invites them into reading. Yeah. And yet we're very dismissive of it. Yeah, and that there is this sort of Victorian, like, you know, ooh, don't look over there kind of um <laughs> attitude towards it which I guess that the list kind of it poked a bit of a a bit of a bruise for me because like I said in the article I have I have had quite a lot of conversations this year with you know people when I've told them about my book and what it's about and they've said oh you know I bet you just dashed that off in a in a weekend didn't you like like Barbara Cartland you know ooh, you know are there cupcakes on the cover and it's it, yeah. you know it's very um more people than I expected that was their response to kind of um you know even in a jokey way just sort of diminish it and assume that they knew what kind of a, a book it was purely from me saying you know I'm a woman who's written a book about a woman's relationships. <laughs> Do you think the kind of snobbery around it comes from 
the fact that it's women writing for women or the fact that it's I don't want to say shamelessly commercial but it is shamelessly commercial the idea of it is actually we want it to sell we want lots of people to read it we want it to be accessible is it or is it a bit both I think that's such an interesting question and there's so many strange kind of assumptions that what I perceive to be the kind of snobbery about women's commercial fiction is founded on I mean first of all the kind of idea that selling a lot of books is is, is somehow slightly embarrassing I mean I <laughs> I just and none of it kind of makes any sense I think when you get up close to it but it's such a sort of um blind spot for so many people and and I think it does in my experience kind of thrillers crime fiction other kinds of genre I'm doing doing echoes here aren't thought of in quite the same way yeah it is a bit of a legacy gender thing I remember when I was 16 or 17 my history teacher who was a man lovely man but um saying oh well, I wouldn't say this to any of the English lit teachers who are women obviously I wouldn't say this to any of the English lit teachers but you know Jane Austen is little more than chiclet and there was so much dismissal in that sentence of one of the UK's greatest ever authors and that really stuck with me it really stuck with me that there was something to be dismissed by this that actually something that was a classic but was nonetheless a classic about women and women's lives was just something you could just meh, get rid of in a sentence and how how did people react to that at the time you know how did you react to that at the time how oh, did you feel I mean I was in an old girl school and I think we just went oh okay yeah I mean this was in the 90s before anyone had um any schools had heard of feminism there was no feminist society at my school let me be quite clear on that and there were typing lessons in case we needed to become secretaries but, um, it was very good school lots of ways but it had flaws um I didn't even think to bat an eyelid it was really I considered it very kind of oh okay well that is Jane Austen and maybe it is a bit light maybe it is a bit girly and then actually yesterday because we're in kind of the run-up to Christmas to record this I was watching a documentary about a Christmas carol and Charles Dickens and Dickens was like aggressively commercial it was like what is going to make people fall in love with these characters what's going to make them resonate what's going to make them think oh this is us we could be like this we could be like this family that's what he went after yeah exactly I, I would say today there are you know there are lots and lots of um of male writers who who approach writing in in exactly that way and I think that was actually the line the line in the piece that the most people have kind of quoted back to me was um <laughs> when I said that, you know, we don't call those kinds of, you know, World War II secret history books and, you know, SAS hero books, we we don't call them men's commercial fiction. We just, we call them books, even though they are commercial fiction that is primarily um, aimed at, at men. And, you know, it's, um, I think when you put it like that, you just realise how, so how ridiculous it is to... Um, to take you know the idea of writing commercially um but then only um only kind of put put that front and center in a slightly dismissive way when it's women doing it I mean it, it does not make any sense at all so one of the things I I said to you on Twitter was 
that actually I went on a writer's retreat a few months ago, which was an amazing, amazing experience. And I don't want to take away from it or the people on it because it was absolutely incredible. I loved it. Um, but I went on this writer's retreat and the tutors taking it were quite serious literary fiction and really, you know, love their craft and that's fantastic. And quite a few people, and I'm going to say specifically young men, um, who also were in that literary fiction space. Mm. And I sort of found myself having to justify wanting to write something that wasn't literary fiction, that was actually aimed at being able to talk about women's lives in an accessible and real and sometimes funny way. And that, mm. I, that, mm. that idea that this is worth less has kind of, it permeates into all of us, really. Yeah, I'm so sorry you had that experience. That should be a, a place where everyone can, um, yeah. you know, um, you're meant to be retreating. <laughs> not, <laughs> well, I, really not, think it was, I, I, want, I do wonder if I'm like, was I just more sensitive to it? Was I more aware of it? Because maybe there is some part of me that thinks I should be writing hardcore literary fiction that, you know, every word is slaved over and it's just the most, again, I'm saying this, and I'm like, there's the most beautiful prose in things that we would consider commercial fiction. Mm, mm. I, yeah, I, I, I couldn't agree more. And I actually, um, I was very lucky uh, yesterday, the, the Post brought me a proof of um, Varying McFarlane's new novel, which oh. is out early next year. And I adore her. And I was kind of treating myself to, you know, a few pages here and there yesterday while I was editing. And I, I mean, she is just the most fantastic prose stylist in any genre you know she is um she is one of the funniest writers that I have ever read she is a really really a superb comic writer and so many of the novelists who who I really love who are sort of felt to sit in that bracket of women's commercial fiction are by any metric really superb prose stylists and they are so brilliant at setting up jokes and characterization and yet, I think they don't always get the mainstream recognition that they deserve. Why did you decide that this was the book you wanted to write, the <laughs> genre that you wanted to write in, the, the space for you? <laughs> Growing up, I was probably a very classic child who um, becomes a writer in that I was... Um, I was fairly uh, socially awkward. <laughs> um, well, you know, um, my best friends were books and I always had my nose in a book in the playground. And I, I always read very kind of widely. And um, I was sort of thinking uh, when I got your email uh, talking about what kind of books I would say, um, you know, got me to this, this point. And I, you know, I did start reading women's commercial fiction when I was quite a young teenager and I, I remember reading uh, Ralph's Party by Lisa Jewell right. and being absolutely blown away by it and um, I picked it up again the other day to prepare for this and, um, and I just thought you know god this is just this is just a wonderful wonderful um, book and it really I think that really kind of gave me an ambition to um, to write a book that just looked at kind of the, the models people get themselves into in their, their relationships. But then, you know, I also read a lot of Terry Pratchett and Douglas Adams, lots of historical fiction. Um, and I actually thought that I did 
want to write historical novels. I may do in the future. Um, so I didn't, um, I didn't really kind of know what I was going to to do. Um, and actually, for a very long time, um, I thought I just wasn't going to be a writer ever, which is a, a funny thing for a journalist to say, you know, someone who wrote every day, but um, I was very, very kind of unconfident about it. Um, and then I, th I think it was the story that I ended up writing that kind of grabbed me more than anything else. Um, because I was living with a, um, a software engineer at the time who just got back from working in San Francisco. And we used to talk a lot about, um, you know, dating apps and how they were built and, you know, all the things that were kind of wrong with them. And then one evening we were just having dinner and we both agreed that the kind of issue with dating apps was sort of, um, I guess you'd call it a kind of input issue that you they weren't getting the right information about people to be able to match them well and I said as a joke well you know they should look at people's search histories you know I think that that's the real key to people's personalities and um he said oh well maybe maybe you should write something about that and um and I said oh well um maybe I will uh, <laughs> and um and then very quickly that sort of attached itself to an idea I'd had for a while of and I think this is actually something that kind of became much more prominent for a lot of people um, over the past two years during the pandemic the idea of being ostensibly an adult in your 30s or approaching your 30s but actually having lost all of the traditional markers of adulthood um so I wanted to write a main character who is back living with family who has a job that feels precarious you know who doesn't really have much of an idea what the next month is going to look like you know let alone the next five years um and how vulnerable being in that position can make you to to getting into the wrong kind of relationship so that's a very long answer. <laughs> no, I think it's a great answer because I loved, um, so I, I love lots of things about the book. One of the things that I love, first of all, is like the kind of opening scene, you describe this new dating app and how it works in the form of a, a press release that every journalist has ever received at some point in their journalist <laughs> And it's just deleted, delete. But when you described it, I was like, that's genius. Why has nobody created that? <laughs> why is my search history not the defining thing which somebody matches me on? Um, I just want somebody else who's searching for all the other things that I search for, but never buy, never go on and never do. So um, and I thought it was very clever and I really enjoyed it. And um, the other thing that I thought was really clever is, and I hope I can say this, we're not giving too much away, but sort of when um, the main character gets into this dating app and she gets approached by them to write about it, part of the deal is that she's going to be set up with somebody and they have to keep dating for 12 weeks which is mm. like a kind of married at first sight tech yeah. version <laughs> <laughs> and I loved that idea that actually there is the who we present ourselves you know my search history where you know if you look to my search history I'm off on sunny holidays every other week and <laughs> I always say that like if I had the life that my google ads were serving to me I'd be so happy um 
And then there's the reality of that person behind it, which is generally a bit messier and a bit less perfected. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think that's actually something that um, women's commercial fiction is is so good at exploring uh, such a kind of modern conundrum in that you, as you say, you do have this kind of public face online and at work and then, but you, you know, your, your inner self can be completely different. And I think books that really let you get into someone's mind, you know, either through first person narration or I think they call it a close, close third person narration, um, you know, where you're still getting access to all of those thoughts and um, the, uh, the disjoint between what someone is thinking and what someone is actually saying. Um, and I think we're all kind of so consumed by that um, now. <laughs> Self-consciousness self of it, you know. Um, and I think that can be where so much of the kind of comedy in romantic comedy comes from, but also so much of the heartbreak, that gap. Why do you think we are perhaps a bit down on romantic comedy? Not down on it, but maybe not as appreciative of it as we could be, both, I think, in film and in, in writing. It feels like it's slightly gone out of fashion a little bit. I had a conversation about exactly this with um, actually, actually someone quite eminent in, um, in publishing. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure why I decided to, um, <laughs> to, to, to chip in with that. Probably wasn't the most, <laughs> the most diplomatic. Um, but this person was tweeted that uh, they were talking about this this kind of concept of uplit and kind of uplifting uplifting fiction, um, which is a sort of publishing label at the moment. Um, and their view was that there was something kind of artificial about it. They they referred to um, you know uplifting books as like ready meals, yeah. and I uh, questioned whether uh, this idea that only the kind of only the kind of sad things can be truthful, that that's the kind of final layer of truth that, you know, happiness is somehow artificial. And I, I just don't think that's true at all. I think anyone who has ever, you know, been out in the world knows that life can be infinitely sad and disappointing, but also infinitely surprising and mm -hmm. wonderful and joyful. And the feelings that, um, you know, people can be a bit snooty about in romantic comedies. I mean, they happen, they're real. <laughs> um, and I, I think um, that's why the kind of, um, like, you know, the kind of corner of journalism that's how you met stories, you know, talking to couples about how they met. I mean, we have an insatiable appetite for these stories about how people came together and accomplished this really remarkable thing of, of building a life with each other. And, it's true and I think it's totally wrong to say that um there's something kind of confected about those stories um and I, actually another point that um I think it was Millie Johnson made in a, a blog post that she did uh, quite recently is that um I think there can be something quite um aspirational in a in a really good way about um writing good relationships yeah um because I think sometimes as a reader it can give you a little push actually to see maybe you know there's something wrong in your own relationship um 
that you want to address or you know maybe it might make you look at someone in your life slightly differently and think hmm actually um you know and I think you you can never underestimate the power of a, a good book that someone connects with to change their life in a really a really positive way I love that I think that's really beautiful because I think we don't because I was actually going to ask you about whether or not we've entered a trend and I will ask this whether or not we've entered a trend <laughs> where we don't want women to have romance in romance novels anymore we want, mm. we want romance to be with for the woman with herself mm. but also I love this idea that actually we could rewrite what relationships looked like if only we read better relationships in books because I got stuck in a traffic jam for two hours yesterday oh. and I had Radio 2 on because that's the age that I am now <laughs> and um, they were playing uh, hits from kind of 1981 which is the year I was born and I was listening to all these songs and I was like dear lord no wonder I grew up with a very warped mm. idea of what a good relationship was mm. number one on the day I was born was the don't you want me baby you were oh. working as a waitress in a cocktail bar yeah. <laughs> ah. Yeah. yeah yeah no wonder I got some very strange ideas um and I love this idea that perhaps actually now we are writing the books that for the relationships that we want to have but also for the relationships that maybe the next generation will look at and think that's normal that's what we should be aspiring to mm, I think that's such a good point and I think you're so right about I think the way that so many of us are actually looking back at the the films and the the songs and the books that we enjoyed as teenagers and you know didn't didn't question at all at a time when we were building our own ideas of what yeah. love was um and actually just how um you know just just how kind of harmful um a lot of those those tropes were but you know we all uh, we all kind of took took them in um and I think it's um I think I think it, it's great to kind of have the idea in your mind that you can you know in your own small way be a bit of a um a bit of, a bit of a kind of corrective uh to that um and I mean you know people talk um people talk sort of slightly um again you know a little bit uh sort of dismissively about you know book boyfriends and you yeah. know male characters in romantic fiction but I think that um you know writing a really good man who's you know in a really healthy relationship um with you know one of your female characters I, th I think that's such a powerful statement yeah <laughs> I mean, dear lord enough of us have grown up wishing we were going out with Rupert Cam Black and then looking at it later on in life and being like he's a narcissist why am I still attracted to him yeah <laughs> I mean, the, the one that really sticks in my mind is, um, I don't know if you watched Buffy when you were... Um, did watch Buffy, yeah. yes. Um, I mean, I did a rewatch over lockdown <laughs> and I mean, and and so did a few of my friends uh, who I was at school with and we all kind of had watched it at the same time. And, um, you know, we all just looked at each other and we said, you know, basically the only good man in this is, is Giles. Giles, yeah. <laughs> and the rest of them are, are really, really bad, you know, but... Um, that wasn't my view at the time so. <laughs> I remember watching the episode um re-watching the episode where Buffy and Angel have sex for the first time and I was like whoa the messaging around this is horrendous yeah. she sleeps with him and he goes from being a nice guy to an absolute I mean mm. an absolute arsehole 
Um, so I feel like that that's not an empowering statement for young women there. Buffy, what was happening? Okay, so I wanted to go back to this idea that we are now in a, a place where we love a romance, not necessarily between the heroine and some amazing hero, but actually a heroine and herself. How is that changing books and writing for women, do you think? Yeah, I think that is, um, that's such a kind of live issue at the moment. And it was certainly uh, kind of in as much as I went into writing women's commercial fiction with um, a sort of mission statement um, that was that was probably mine that I wanted to um, I really wanted to show um, all of the different kinds of love that you can have in your life um, and how they can be absolutely equal to um, you know uh, the kind of love that you might get from a romantic relationship um so that the book I'm was meant to have finished yesterday um, <laughs> um is um uh the main character has two best friends and that you know they've all got a group chat and they are they're very very close um and it's really as much about their love and also about her relationship with her stepmom who came into her life when she was a teenager and who she's very very close to and kind of that relationship it is it is absolutely as much about those two as about her romantic relationships and I think to be honest I've actually had to course correct myself in the opposite <laughs> direction because I in my first book I I started out with um Laura ending up alone and being fine with it and I really I really felt quite strongly that that was what I wanted to do because I wanted to show a happy ending that wasn't finding love and then in, in the end I did something slightly different and I you know I'm, I'm very happy with kind of how that turned out and I think it was the right I called it kind of like the an Italian job ending where like you've just got the bus hanging off <laughs> and then someone says hang on I've got a brilliant idea <laughs> um, and actually this this one I'm writing now was meant to be meant to be the same it was meant to have quite an open ending and then I woke up yesterday morning and I suddenly thought I'm going to stick an extra chapter on at the end oh. um a kind of epilogue because I I actually I'd really like the readers to be able to see how I imagine her life develops after what I thought of as the kind of point where I would you know bring the curtain down um so I think maybe in myself I had to tackle that kind of um I think I sort of worked so hard to kind of uh, dismantle the idea that happiness was dependent on being in a relationship yeah. that I actually had to kind of come back to it as a writer and sort of embrace the fact that it's it's also a lovely thing <laughs> and it's a lovely thing to to write about and read about. It's a really interesting thing because I would say in my life one of the things mm -hmm. I've had to learn is that this idea that we can hold two things simultaneously so we can hold the idea that you can be single and by yourself and actually really happy and really loved and very loving and having amazing relationships mm. and you can also hold the desire for a romantic relationship mm. and mm. that that can be something that you want and also that you can have the two together that yes. it doesn't have to be a trade-off yeah. yeah um and I 
I actually think what I'm really enjoying about perhaps the kind of the move fiction is making at the moment is that we did go down this quite sort of strong like actually it's let's let's stop having them get together with a man and that being the end it's you know, there's got to be more to it than that and now it's like there's a bit of as you say a course correct which is like and actually it can be about creating a love story with the heroine herself and then actually seeing what happens for her afterwards mm. that's not the mm. end I think that's a really if we're looking at this in terms of and I don't know why I've made this whole podcast about us messaging for the next generation, <laughs> but I feel like we are. <laughs> but um, if, if that's what we're looking at as messaging for the next generation, then I think that is really a really strong place for fiction to be and for things for fiction to be talking about. And I think one of the other things that is, um, is really encouraging to see at the moment is that, um, you know, women's commercial fiction has traditionally been a very, very... Um, uh, a very straight, very kind of heteronormative genre. And, you know, I'm very aware that for all that I have felt that, you know, I've had these conversations with people where they've slightly looked down their nose at, at my books, you know, at the end of the day, I am a, you know, a straight white woman writing about straight white women, which is what the genre has traditionally always been. But I think something we are seeing at the moment is many more queer love stories being allowed to come to the front yeah. um stories by writers of color which are kind of like representation is i think things are genuinely moving in a much more mm-hmm. encouraging direction i think that is so important for that next generation to be able to kind of see yourself and what you think your story might be reflected in a really uplifting encouraging yeah. way that is is full of love I think that's the best thing. I think so. I love that. And I love um, the idea that actually in that representation, we get, we still get the the genre, the themes, the ideas, the writing that we love, but we just get to see a slightly different take on it. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking this when I was watching um, the Strictly Final last night, which yes. I oh. my eyes out the whole way through. <laughs> um, and I thought how lovely that we have John and Johannes and mm-hmm. Rose and Giovanni, who are still showing what that show is all about, which is beautiful journey, uh, beautiful journey, beautiful dancing, and the journey to loving dance and that kind of whole experience around it. But I have just slightly, ever so slightly, just shifted a perspective on it, and I now see something different. Mm-hmm. And it's taken something that I've seen for fifteen years or however long it's been going, and that I think I know and I understand and I see all sides of. And it's allowed me just to see it from a slightly different place. And in doing that, it's completely reignited a new love for it. Because yeah. I've seen it from a different point of view. Yeah, yeah. It was an amazing show. I think I think the entire country was just sitting in front of it in floods of tears <laughs> last night. Which is, you know, I mean, how how powerful, how how amazing. Yeah. I think somebody on Twitter described it as the emotional catharsis we all needed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, finally, I just wanted to ask you really... I always ask this for everyone, Mom, but um, this is a podcast for, I guess, well, I say for people who want to write. It's a podcast for me who wants to write. So what have you learned? This is your, uh, No Such Thing as Perfect, your first book. You have, we're going to say you've just finished because, you know, by the time it goes out, <laughs> just finished your second one. What have you learned along the way? Gosh, wow. Uh, <laughs> how long have you got? <laughs> settle settle in um, well um, 
I think people are sometimes quite surprised when I say that um, how difficult I found it to write fiction because you know my day job I was writing every day but I really really struggled a lot with getting words down on the page and um, you know there was a, a period of about 10 years probably between about yeah about 20 and 30 when I kept trying to write stories I kept trying to write novels and just I never I never even completed a, a paragraph really there were a couple of a couple of different um, things that really really helped me get over that the first was was really talking to other writers and in my my kind of late 20s I had a boyfriend who was a writer um, a very successful one he'd, he'd written one book that was very really sold very well and was very kind of beloved by people and I really thought that he would have been someone who had got to a point where he was just sort of beyond anxiety and beyond worry but actually you know seeing how just how hard writing was for him and and you know how much it kind of um you know how many anxieties it brought up and insecurities I did just sort of think god well if it's like that for him the fact that I feel like this doesn't actually mean what I'm doing is wrong it just means that this is this is a difficult thing um and <laughs> he had a very funny phrase that I I think of a lot um he used to say that writing a book is like um it, you go into it with this idea in your head that's kind of like the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel and then you get to the end and you think oh wow I've made a shed <laughs> it's a shed. I mean it stands up but it's a shed you know there's no art to it um and um you know I I find that very very comforting that everyone has an idea in their their mind of the book that they want to write and then actually what you end up with is never it's never <laughs> as good and there is no way around that there is absolutely no way of getting that vision kind of down your arm and into uh on, onto the screen so that was that was very very helpful um I think the other thing was sort of learning how collaborative a process it can and should be um just not being alone in the process, I think is, is so important, but I think most writers are quite solitary by, by leaning. So um, I think kind of working to overcome that is really important. I love that. I love that. <laughs> it's like, because one of the reasons, I love that you said that one of the best things you can do is talk to other writers, because that was why I started this podcast. I was like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing. Somebody help. Um, <laughs> <Which is> amazing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also because when I looked around, I was like, oh, there's a really lovely community out there. There's a really lovely community yeah. of writers. And yeah. I can try and go and be part of that. And that would be a really nice thing to do. Yes. And I, I I don't I think this idea that writers are all kind of out to get each other. Um, I have never encountered that at all in real life. I have never had anything but um, support and kindness and encouragement um, from other writers, especially uh, other women who write. Um, and it's it really it is the most wonderful thing, actually, um, to 
you know to kind of put your hand up and say hello <laughs> I'm, I'm new here and for people to say oh you know come come on in you know <laughs> what would you like to, what would you like to drink it's uh <laughs> um and I, I think just just one more thing that I've remembered as as we were talking um I can't actually remember who it was who said it to me I think it might have been um my editor Emily um I think as a um, as a writer, you're so focused on your your main character and what they're they're thinking and feeling. Um, but it's just as important to find that love for all the other characters mm. in the book, even the ones who actually maybe you don't like very much. You have to try to find a way um, to love them, you know, like you might love a a slightly challenging relative who comes around for Christmas or um you know you have to you have to find that point of connection um so that the readers will want to kind of uh spend a book's worth of time in their in their company <laughs> love that love it Emma thank you so much um it's been absolutely lovely chatting to you thank you for your spirited defense women's commercial fiction um <laughs> and um no such thing as perfect is out now in hardback and it's just lovely it's really lovely and i thoroughly enjoyed it and i can't wait for the next one um thank you so much and i hope you'll come back on again when the next book is out and we can talk about that one too thank you so much for having me it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you and um i think it looks like we we defeated the um the cable chewing rats on my internet. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. That was Emma Hughes. Her book, No Such Thing as Perfect, is out in hardback now. Now, as I said, this is the final episode of this season. And if you're listening to it as it goes out, then maybe you're also staring into 2022, wondering, well, A, what the hell happened to 2021? And thinking about what you want more of in the coming 12 months. If you are, then I hope this exercise will help. It's one of my favourites, and I'm stealing it from the brilliant team at London Writers' Salon. They do it in each of their new month workshops and it's just it's just brilliant. I love it. Also, it's very, very easy, which after you've eaten, you know, a Brussels sprout, a few potatoes, half a turkey is exactly what you need. It starts with this quote from Neil Gaiman and it's based on a kind of principle that he has that he talked about to, I think, the University of Arts in London at an inauguration speech. And he said to them, if you have an idea of what you want to make, what you are put here to do, then just go and do that. And that's much harder than it sounds. And sometimes in the end, so much easier than you might imagine. Because normally there are things you have to do before you can get to the place you want to be. I wanted to write comics and novels and stories and films. So I became a journalist. Because journalists are allowed to ask questions and simply go and find out how the world works. And besides, to do those things, I needed to write and to write well. And I was being paid to learn how to write economically, crisply, sometimes under adverse conditions and on time. Sometimes the way to do what you hope to do will be clear cut and sometimes it will be almost impossible to decide whether or not you are doing the correct thing because you'll have to balance your goals and hopes with feeding yourself, paying debts, finding work, settling for what you can get. Something that worked for me was imagining that where I wanted to be an author, primarily a fiction, making good books, making good comics and supporting myself through my words, was a mountain, a distant mountain, my goal. 
and I knew that as long as I kept walking towards the mountain, I would be all right. And when I truly was not sure what to do, I could stop and think about whether it was taking me towards or away from the mountain. I said no to editorial jobs on magazines, proper jobs that would have paid proper money, because I knew that attractive though they were for me, that for me they would have meant walking away from the mountain. And if those job offers had come along earlier, I might have taken them, because they still would have been closer to the mountain than I was at that time. I learned to write by writing. I tended to do anything as long as it felt like an adventure and to stop when it felt like work, which meant that life did not feel like work. I really love that quote. I love the idea of life as an adventure and the adventure being to to walk towards the mountain, getting as close to it as you can and getting all the way to the top. So creative booster for this week is to think about what is your mountain and then draw, write, sculpt, knit, paint, crochet or whatever else you like that mountain. What is on it and in it? What are the hopes and dreams that make it up? What is right there at the top and what are the steps you have to take as you walk towards it? And when you've got that mountain clear, put it somewhere you can see it so you can take it into 2022 with you. Thank you all so much for listening over the last few weeks. This podcast has been a joy for me to do and some of you have sent me lovely messages letting me know you've enjoyed it too, which has absolutely warmed my heart. Thank you so much. If you've enjoyed it and you wanted to leave a review wherever you get your podcasts, that would be the best end of year gift you could give me. And so for now, I'll say goodbye, but I'll be back again in January with more brilliant writers and maybe more of a book. Goodbye for now. Thank you.